Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our study in the Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, your BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're looking at part three of a four-part study in the prophet Isaiah and his message. This covers lesson 20 in the BSF study guide. I hope you enjoyed our guest lecturer, Holly Roberts, the president of BSF, who gave the lecture last week. So I just have a couple of announcements before we get into the meat of the lecture here. One, uh, if you're hungry for some good godly Christian music in your home, I was just suddenly um, alerted to a ministry called Sacred Turntable, which is available by streaming through your devices. We leave it on through a, a Google device here in our kitchen and just the most amazing, uh, uplifting and encouraging music coming on throughout the day. So just filling your house with the praises of the Lord is such an important thing to uh, remind yourself to be in a prayerful and worshipful mindset in everything that you enter into throughout the day. And Secondly, we had such an amazing time of fellowship with the leaders and then also with our individual groups last week. And I hope you had a great time as well. Remember, we have one more fellowship coming up in April. And this is a, a time I hope that you won't miss out in entering into the lives of your member members in your group and just getting to know them on a more personal level than you can possibly do in a time-constrained uh, period in Zoom. You know, Zoom is not an adequate uh, substitute for what we used to do in our face-to-face -face meetings. But, you know, I, I understand. I mean, we all have very busy lives. And as we come back out of a uh, post-pandemic era, I hope that you will not neglect the gathering of yourselves together to encourage and to bless one another. Let's move on to our study for today. The big idea in this section is God's heart to save sinners. And the doctrine to be mindful of is on salvation. You know, we can never think uh, enough about what salvation means to a believer. The attribute of God that we look at is uh, Savior and Deliverer and what it means, why He calls Himself that. And, um, and to be remembering that no other religion actually uses these words to describe their deity. They couldn't, right? They couldn't possibly begin to do that. Uh, but there are ways in which the scripture uniquely paints a picture of a savior God, a delivering God that is unique to Christianity and uh, so vital to the understanding that when God says he's love, that love is rooted in this idea of his saving grace, his redemptive grace. And the aim that we are, it causes the audience to learn is that God is trustworthy to save and he's keeping all of his promises in the covenant. So that's why the word covenant is so powerful and meaningful to Christians is because covenant is an embodiment of everything that he's promised, which gets fulfilled in the gospel, in our understanding of what Christ came to do. So the two divisions that we look at this week is one, God declared comfort for his weary people. That's Isaiah 40. And then two, God denounces idols and introduces his plans for his servant and then also for Cyrus, um, Isaiah 41 to 48. And the two principles that we want to look at with their applications is that one, only God can provide true comfort. And the application for us to think about in this uh, principle of the fact that God can only provide true comfort and true peace is in what ways do we try to substitute our hope with something else besides God? In what do you place your hope in besides God? 
How has a reliance in worldly instruments and strategies for creating a sense of life security replaced your confidence in God? What else are you trusting in uh, as a substitute for your confidence in God? And then two, God orchestrates history to provide salvation for sinners. Now, all of history is ultimately His story. It's God's story. And uh, much of the ways in which humans roll out the account of history is based on human hubris and survival of the fittest and winning and conquering by power and wit and might. But that's not the story that God tells. The story of God in the scriptures is one of God's overtures of love and drawing people to himself because we have been created for a purpose. And this life is more than what people around us are saying it is. It's not about personal survival. I mean, we just don't live long enough to enjoy. <laughs> I was just talking with somebody about the phases of life. And, you know, just as as soon as you think you understand what life is about, uh, most people are at the winter of their lives, if not in the autumn of their lives, and uh, their bodies are already breaking down. And, and, and we just haven't, we just don't have it in us to continue living in contention with one another, hoarding and hoarding masses amounts of wealth and, and things to make us happy. I mean, we just, we know that that's not the answer. And so God orchestrates history here to provide a message of salvation, communicate salvation for us sinners. And the application is, how are you comforted by God's purposeful intentions and control, both of this world and your life? How are you comforted by that? So we're going to go on to how this is being taught in this lesson. You know, it's said that you can learn a lot about a person by asking them about their view of God. It's just one question. What is your view of God? What do you think about God? What they think and know about God will affect their understanding about themselves, their self-worth, their life purpose and reason for existence, and their future. You know, there's a lot that's wrapped up in a person's view of God, or, or maybe even their lack of a view of God, the complete oblivion of uh, thinking of God in any sense, meaningful sense. So it is with this understanding that Western academic traditions began by centering their learning around theology. You know, there was a theology school before Harvard. There was a Harvard theology school. There was a Yale theology, and Princeton started that way. Because they knew that that one discipline was the foundation for all other unifying studies of the universe. It was rooted in an understanding of God and why he made the world the way he did. The knowing of God enables the architecture of life, an architecture for understanding our place and our role in it. A person's theology will inevitably involve their view of Christ, of course, the Messiah, so the study of that branched out of theology is Christology, the study of God's sensual character in his covenant, which becomes the basis for everything in the new life that we as believers in Christ live into, and we will continue to live into in our universal reality of the new age to come. So this is the extraordinary message and it's where we are in the study of Isaiah, uh, who is teaching us a better understanding of Christology, of the Messiah, God's covenant deliverer who was promised from the beginning of time, who is now very soon to arrive into the world. 
Isaiah's emphasis on the coming Messiah, God's anointed Savior, is second only to the Psalms in the Old Testament in terms of its fullness and the variety uh, the variety of ways in which he's talked about. God revealed more about the coming Messiah to Isaiah than he did to any other Old Testament character. Messianic themes in Isaiah include words like the branch or the stone, the rock, light, the child, a king, and especially the servant, from which one of the BSF questions asks about the servant songs. Where, you know, the servant, another way of talking about it is the minister, the minister of God's grace. In some of the passages in Isaiah, Israel is the servant of the Lord, uh, and that is one of those views. And then sometimes Cyrus is talked about uh, being a servant of the Lord. Uh, but all of these other servants are kind of shadows in relation to the perfect servant and minister of God in the Messiah. Uh, epitomized in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of everything God intended for the Israelites to worship and to honor and to re to be expectant about, right? So they're expectant for a, here the king, the the high priest, the prophet of God, who can tell them the truth, who can lead them and govern them rightly, the servant Messiah. So it would be difficult to overstate the importance of Isaiah for the Christology of the church. The theological message of the book may be summarized as follows. The Lord will fulfill his ideal for Israel by purifying his people through judgment and then restoring them to a renewed covenantal relationship with him. He will establish Jerusalem or Zion as the center of his worldwide kingdom and reconcile once hostile nations to himself. So, some of you, as you're reading, you might have come across some kind of inkling. Did, did Isaiah write the entire book? Well, Isaiah's message was arguably the greatest of the four prophets who lived and wrote toward the end of the 8th century BC. Amos and Hosea ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time, and Micah and Isaiah served in Judah. So, you know, uh, an easy way to remember these four important prophets is to remember the phrase, Ami. So, Ah is A. H, which is Amos and Hosea, and then me is M-I, which stands for Micah and Isaiah. So before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament that were known were produced in the 9th century AD, so you know, a thousand, roughly a thousand years ago. The reason that so few, or so few older copies of the Bible books existed is that the Jews you know, would regularly retire old copies of their scriptures and then place them in kind of a repository uh, for sacred writings, and they get eventually burned. I mean, can you imagine how these uh, precious sacred scrolls would be used in worship and in reading and study, and they would eventually have to be replaced and retired and replaced by new scrolls. And of course, that rewriting and copying went through a very rigorous process. It wasn't just one scribe pouring over and replicating, but a team of people. One person I understood um, explained to me, uh, while one person wrote, someone else check that writing, someone else verified it. There was a team of people that went through carefully proctoring and making sure that word for word, the sacred scriptures were completely and perfectly replicated from the previous copy. So the whole community of the scribes is very different from what you expect 
of one person sitting at a desk and copying things by himself without any um, one to oversee this whole very important process. Rather, this was an industry for the Jews. This was uh, something so sacred and important that you had very high-ranking and low-ranking sort of like librarians uh, work out the process of replicating in a very time-consuming but very carefully observed process of um, preserving, archiving, producing the various different leathers uh, whereupon the parchment was made, looking at different ink types, constantly thinking of ways in which to preserve this for longer and longer periods of time. I mean, this is a very intensive industrial process for them. And this was, before, of course, before the printing press. But their intent was to preserve perfectly the sacred word of God. But, you know, with all of this going on, the earliest copy of Isaiah that we had was uh, from 1000 AD. That was roughly about a thousand years ago. So with uh, very few more extant and older copies around, the thing that scholarship would usually do then would be to call into question the veracity of the scriptures. And we'll say, well, these came from oral traditions and they were written by various different people. And there, over time, would have been so much contamination involved in uh, different people and rabbis and teachers inserting things into the original text that we probably have nothing close to what it looked like originally. So this kind of prevailing idea in scholarship started to get, gain widespread popularity, and it wasn't until the findings of the Dead Sea Scroll that they found that among even the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copies were actually of Isaiah itself. The book of Isaiah they found completely intact, and it's called the St. Mark's or Monastery Manuscript. The St. Mark's Manuscript of Isaiah is the only one of the scrolls that contain a whole book of the Bible, and with the exception of some of the small fragments of other manuscripts discovered, it is the oldest of the manuscripts found in the caves. So Miller Burroughs, a man who dated the manuscript of Isaiah, says that, you know, as old as these are, at the very least, they predate Jesus Christ when he was on earth by a hundred years. And it may possibly be even much older than that. This shows that the book of Isaiah was at that time a unified document. It wasn't in different sections and different divisions. It was of one piece. And this does not prove, of course, you know, single authorship, but it lends weight to the argument of more conservative scholars that one person wrote the entire book. And then also internal and external evidence points to the unity of scholarship. The title for God as, you know, Holy One of Israel, which is often used uh, not only in the beginning, but it, it's kind of used throughout the scripture. So it reflects a deep impression of Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, made about God, which occurs again 12 times in chapters 1 to 39 and 14 times in chapters 40 to 66. So only seven times elsewhere in the entire Old Testament itself. It's not a usual thing to refer to God as the Holy One of Israel. And you remember that that came from his vision where the angels themselves declared, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The world, the earth is full of his glory. Other key phrases, passages and words, themes and motifs likewise appear in both parts of the book repeatedly as if these were of uh, the same author. Jewish tradition uniformly also attributes the entire book to Isaiah, as did Christian traditions thereafter until the 18th century. 
when uh, this kind of uh, undermining of scripture started to take rule, take uh, popularity. And St. Mark's manuscript of Isaiah has chapter 40 beginning in the same column in which chapter 39 ends, which means, you know, there wasn't a breakup, which was kind of later attached. These are divisions that we have come up with only recently. In the old manuscripts, they're of one stream. There is no breakage. And as you know, you know, Hebrew writing, they don't even have kind of breakages in the sentences. So all the major commentaries and introductions deal with the unity problem in this way. So Isaiah's understanding of theology was profound. He's, if he wanted to say anything, he's, he wants to talk about God. And he's profoundly changed by this experience with God. As, you know, as inevitably we all are. If you're not changed, um, you will be if you confront and you come face to face with God and his glory. This is, of course, what happens when one countenances the presence of God and sees him as he really is, enthroned and lifted up with all this kind of frightful creatures in the heavenly realms praising and giving him glory and uh, honor. It inevitably and permanently changes a person when one confronts the magnificence of God. He sets forth the wonder, I'm talking about Isaiah, sets forth the wonder and grandeur of the Lord more ably than most other writers of the Old Testament prophets. He was a poetic artist who used a large vocabulary and many literary devices to express his thoughts really beautifully and powerfully. Most of his prophecies appear to have been messages that he delivered, many commentaries think. So he was probably also a powerful orator as well. Remember the context that Isaiah is writing in. That's very important for this lesson. The old world order is passing and being replaced by a new world order. Smaller nation states are entering the age of world empires, the likes of which people have never seen before. Fueled by rapid population growth, new forms of social collaborations across borders and cultures, newfound wealth from advancing, advanced um, technologies in agriculture and military technologies, the building of highways promoting international trade and commerce, increasing knowledge transfer and spillovers, and uh, of course, access to new ideas, new ways of doing things and cultures. So if Israel was obedient, it seems to point to this idea that Israel would have been a nation in the crossroads of all of the highways going about the earth where people came to know God. They were not involved in the trade and accumulation of wealth like the other nations did, but they brought people to remind them of God and His holiness and, and His sovereign rule over all the earth as a nation of priests as He was training them to be. But in the middle of all of this, and despite Israel as uh, being uh, kind of nurtured by God through the ages, they were defiant and disobedient. And God continue, however, to use Israel to expand the knowledge of God uh, as a diaspora exiled into the nations. And this is now what we're going to read about. What they failed to be as a nation of priests, God preserved them to be a source of light and truth into important positions of power, influence, and administration in the exiled empire lands around them. So God was still going to use Israel, but in a way they, they did not expect but it was going to be a path of great suffering and trial as they were under judgment for the grave sins that led them down a very dark path. But of course, from people's perspective, you know, the Jews only saw the complete destruction of the nation. 
the questions on their minds in this crisis would have been like these. They would have said, is God truly the sovereign of history? If the godless nations are stronger than God's nation, I mean, from their perspective, of course, does might make right? What is the role of God's people in the world? I mean, did God give up on us? And does divine judgment mean divine rejection? What is the nature of trust? before God? What is the future of the Davidic monarchy? Did God kind of forego his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are not the idols stronger than God in this case? I mean, look at the prospering pagan nations around us, um, therefore superior to God himself. All of these mis um, misperceptions can drive wrong questions. If you've had the experience of raising children, you know that sometimes when children disobey and get punished for it, they end up looking at you in the worst possible light and start asking questions about fairness that is completely skewed in their favor. And so it's in the same way that the Israelites may be asking these and Isaiah seeks to address and disabuse them of these wrong ideas. Stated briefly, the purpose of Isaiah is to display God's glory and holiness through his judgment of sin and his deliverance, and then also to remind them of the blessing of a righteous remnant. Isaiah showed the tremendous value that God places on humanity and the world, and also how he cares about when we, the fact that when we fall into pride and unbelief, Isaiah condemns the spiritual lawlessness of idolatry. Not because the lawlessness of idolatry itself is, is look, and looking foolish, but wrong ideas and wrong worship has a disintegrating effect. It fractures us. It takes us down an increasingly dark and wicked path. And given how powerful we are as image bearers of God in the way God created us, we have great potential for great harm and, and uh, bringing harm to other people. So, you know, when people assert their primacy and their sovereignty over their own lives, it eventually leads to their own brutalistic outcomes. And that all stems from, you know, running after false gods. The powerful and the rich oppress and enslave the weak and the powerless. And the whole game of life looks like it's played on the on the idea that it's survival of the fittest in a world of winners and losers in a kind of monopoly game where the man who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, that's a really dismal way in which we live without God. And Isaiah condemns this because he knows that the powerful and the rich oppress and enslave the weak and powerless. As all the other 8th century prophets had warned, Isaiah condemns this injustice that grows out of their self-worship and also worship after and following after pagan gods. This always happens when God and his word is removed or dismissed from public life. The moral center of gravity diminishes the intrinsic value of the most vulnerable people in our society. Actually, all the evil in the world results from man's refusal to accept the lordship of God. So Isaiah wrote extensively, expansively across the various themes that God communicated to Israel that he also elaborates and expounds upon with more detail than you know we had seen before. But what makes this more profound for all believers who are reading into his words now, this message of hope, it's Isaiah's message of hope imbued with clearer details about about our ultimate hope realized in the Messiah and his arrival. 
the Messiah, as you remember, is at the heart of everything in the Old Testament. But it's now becoming more and more clear what that Messiah is going to look like. God's promise to Adam and Eve, the temple, the altar sacrifice, the Levitical emphasis on the preparation of the sacrifice, the priests and their purity rites, the holiness, all of that kind of looked ritualistic. Then you have Moses and the deliverance from Egypt, the Passover, the failure of so many kings that we have read about. They all kind of seem like separate stories, but now in the failure of everything and through Isaiah's prophecy, every important aspect of Jewish history comes together in a prophetic way to describe the Messiah. So again, every important and significant practice and historical event in the lives of the Israelites pointed to God's promises of the King and Savior who could do what no other human could do, who himself embodies the rituals and sacrifices made at the altar, who he himself will be the king of kings that no human king could live up to. He would be the perfect king. And the weaknesses of human attempts that we had studied so far makes us realize even more how a wonderful king and shepherd and priest and prophet and savior Jesus really is. Because now we have had a chance to look at what flawed human versions of that look like. Isaiah's message makes this clear right on the eve of their exile. He tells the people of Judah, You may think things look very bleak and that your life and world has come to an end, but this is not the end. God will bring you back and he will reestablish his people through the promises, through the covenant bearer, the deliverer, the savior who will bear the sins of the world. The best is yet to come. The world is not coming to an end. The best is still to come. Rather, the world is being set up for the beginning of the age of the gospel, the age of grace, the age of redemption and the people of God, not born by natural descent of human decision, but born of God. In John 1, 3, we are reminded that this Messiah, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He is God, come and incarnate, he was the only begotten of God. One of the questions in the lesson this week talks about the servant songs. The servant songs explain the unfamiliar ways that God's anointed one, the Messiah, will be ministering and giving service to our deepest needs. Because we think of kings in very human ways being uh, kind of looking out for themselves and governing with power and authority and being very attractive and distinctive, uh, Isaiah tries to balance that out with a very different notion of the spiritual king that God has sent. And he uses uh, descriptions of the Messiah as being not someone that sticks out and we would be attracted to. And the servant songs accentuate a method of serving and ministering that he will be uh, undertaking that is very unconventional, unfamiliar to us as a king, easy to miss or dismiss or misunderstand. But he's pointing out something very important, that God's chosen king, the king of kings, is not a, uh, like the human kings, very different from it. And, and one of the attributes of this king is that he is a servant king. With the attributes described in these passages, of which there are four, and some would argue also a fifth one in chapter 61. You know, one of the leaders did a word study through chapter 40 and 41 of Isaiah to just get a better understanding of what Isaiah was describing about God. So he had all these adjectives and um, 
So what was discovered about the attributes of God are these, that God is God of all comfort, remover of obstacles to his access, waymaker, welcoming, waymaking, creator, eternal, faithful, father, all-glorious, good, gracious, guide, holy, immutable and unchanging, impartial and just, incomprehensible, infinite, invisible. He's jealous for our love, just. He's loving, merciful, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, patient, perfect. He's also personable, preserver, provider, righteous, savior, sovereign, and wise. And you know, he came up with this from just chapter 40. He's going to go through 41, but there's a lot here that we can learn about God, the ways in which he's describing himself to us. So let's take a moment now to look through these powerful passages to remind ourselves of the key lessons to take away and meditate on more this week. So in chapter 40, verse 3, 4, and 5, it says, The voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. You know, kind of this other worldly highway, not the one of trade and commerce, but making a road easy for people to come to the Lord. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. Any kind of obstacles, the way you see it, where you have to go descend or you have to ascend to get to, the rough ground shall be leveled, it says. The rugged places made a plain where the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will come to see it. This is what Israel is about. You know, you think about Israel and the purpose for Israel. They're at the juxtaposition of the continents. And it's a place where even as difficult and as far away as it can seem, all nations even today come streaming to it to seek God. And they find God in the narrative of the Jewish history that God has preserved to his people, the Israelites. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, he's keeping it. And now we are, we are the diaspora uh, spread throughout the world among the nations, teaching and preaching and calling people to enter into the covenant of God in Christ. There is the word of God stands forever, it says in verse 8, and then down to 13. You know, who has understand, who understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who has taught him the right way or who has taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And then right after that verse, it says, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on a scale. I mean, back then, the smallest thing they can think of was dust. But today they might even say, you're nothing but an electron. You're, you're an atomic particle. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, as nothing. And if he thinks of us uh, as, in that way, the nations that way, um, and just imagine what he would think of other things that we think of today as being enormous, like the universe and the distance of galaxies. I mean, people don't realize that the distance of galaxies in outer space is just as far away as the distance of atoms and the atomic world in inner space. We can't go transversing either space uh, because we're limited in our physical uh, reality to be able to trans transverse that, that, that distance, whether outer space or inner space. 
but regardless, there is within the containment of this body that we will eventually transverse a spiritual space. And we, we really don't know and understand fully what spiritual, the word spiritual means. But there is a transformation that happens, something more essential to us in our being that will transverse the space that we know into a far greater reality. So going on in verse 17, before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare to him? And then he talks about the idol and the idols that we forge while we try to remake the world in our image. And this is really important. It reminds me of how um, someone said to me uh, a short while ago when they heard about Yosemite and the Grand Canyon, they just thought of it theoretically, but it wasn't until they got there and they saw the Grand Canyon and the enormity and the grandeur of it, they felt all of a sudden at the edge of its cliff, extremely small, so small, they said it felt like the feeling they get when they're actually out in a dark night sky and start to realize how incredibly small and insignificant they are to the largeness of what they saw. And this is kind of the view that um, Isaiah is unrolling out for us, is that we lose sight of God because we don't countenance God. Isaiah was in the throne room and saw God high and lifted up and praised and glorified. And what's important there is that immediately that experience put everything else in perspective. Isaiah ex found himself in full grasp of the real state of things and that he was not deserving to be there at all. He cried out, woe is me, I'm a man undone. And uh, he was falling apart um, every second he was there. Now imagine verse 21, God declares, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. I mean, just now imagine that very presence of God, the very fearsome and wonderful, amazing presence and glory of God above the circle of the earth, managing and caring for it. I mean, people, astronauts, they have taken that view from space and know that this planet is very special. It, it caused them to praise, to worship, and to understand their smallness. This little pale blue dot becomes the stage whereupon eternal drama, spiritual drama takes place with great consequences. And of all the different drama and noise that goes on on this planet, there was the incarnation of the Messiah who, who came. And uh, Eugene Peterson wrote that uh, the ministry of Jesus is bracketed by suffering on both ends. In the beginning, his ministry began with 40 days of temptation in the desert and concluded, he says, that never-to-be-forgotten night of testing and trial in Gethsemane in Jerusalem. Has anyone ever experienced such a relentless, merciless pounding from within and from without? First, there was the cunning attempts to get him off track. Every temptation disguised as a suggestion for uh, improvement on things, offered with the best of intentions to help Jesus on the ministry. Use your powers for yourself. Do this, do that. And then on the other end, when all the temptations had failed, that brutal assault when his body was turned into a torture chamber 
and we know the result, an incomprehensible kindness while he hung on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them, and an unprecedented serenity and peace in God's shalom when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he gave himself for us in complete atonement, and then he rose again. And there's nothing like it. It is a story that's told by all other stories. It is the event and the story upon which all our theology hangs in revealing and teaching and guiding us into understanding the new age to come. Everything is based on this life of Christ the Messiah. So he says in verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. So, you know, basically all the drama play and all the nation contending against nation becomes nothing and it gets lost in memory. He established and brings to an end leaders and influencers and powerful social networks and the internet even. But he says in verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. There is a story that he wants to tell in a world of many competing stories, in a world where we're probably inundated by more narratives than humanity has ever heard or been confronted with, with streaming services, online, YouTube, Netflix, whatever else is out there. And they're funneling more and more money to confuse and distract people from the essential, most meaningful stories where People's anxieties and their worries and fears, their existential crises about why they're alive, can come to a permanent shalom into a love relationship with the God who cares and reaches out for them in Christ, the covenantal Messiah. So Isaiah cries out in verse 9, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And again he says, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with them and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. This is the singular most important story. Isaiah, in a way, is prefiguring the harbinger of our Lord, John the Baptist, who will go into the land to be a voice in the spiritual desert, preparing the way for the Lord, calling all to make straight paths in the wilderness, a highway for our God. So like Jacob's staircase that bridges heaven to earth, the boulevard, the access road from heaven, bridging and making clear pathways to God in Christ Jesus, this caller also cries out that every valley should be raised up and every mountain and hill made low, flat, the rough ground be leveled. And he's calling everyone to see, here is your God. Don't get distracted by other things, the diversions, the the out-of-balance and skewed lives where we get so caught up in a web of busyness that we forget what is the story that makes sense of everything else. Here is your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've made it very clear to us. Here is our God in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
the Trinity all wrapped up and understood through Him who made Him known to us, made you known to us. And so, Lord, we lift you up and praise you that you have made Christ the centerpiece of all things that we are to understand, that we have exposure to, that He's at the center, and we understand you and we understand ourselves perfectly through Him and Him alone. So may your Lord covenantal deliverer and Savior be exalted and help us to go forth into the world to carry that message of good news with confidence and with power and with the indwelling of your Holy Spirit to speak rightly and to do every good work, Lord, to bringing down walls and barriers and highways, making open access to yourself. We thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name.